Hello again, everyone. I am Dr. Christy Sutherland. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Echo on substance use from the BC CSU. We are recording on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. So I'm a family doctor and an addiction medicine specialist. I'm also the physician education lead at the BC Centre on Substance Use and the medical director at the Portland Hotel Society, and I work in Vancouver's downtown east side. And I'm a journalist. I have spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, mental health, and the current overdose crisis. This is a podcast for healthcare providers, and Dr. Sutherland and I are focusing on issues in British Columbia and opioid use disorder specifically. Today we are talking about the overdose crisis. It has been four grueling years here in British Columbia with hundreds of deaths, uh, and hundreds of people are still dying in British Columbia, as many as four people a day die every day of illicit drug overdose. And the drug supply is less safe than it was when illicit fentanyl first started taking over the drug supply. I just find it enraging and baffling (laughs) that this is ongoing. And it breaks my heart to think that the number should be zero. We should have zero overdose deaths. All right. So what do we do about this? Complex problems need complex solutions. And I think that that's why um, this has dragged so much, because it is such a complex issue. Uh, And as physicians, our patients are experiencing harms beyond the tainted illicit drug supply alone. They're experiencing harms that come with criminalization of that illicit drug. I think frontline health workers have seen the effects of this in every part of the province and are perhaps used to dealing with individual patients. But today we're talking about the harms of criminalization and the opportunities that legalization and regulation, decriminalization and access to a safe supply of drugs could offer. We're going to be hearing from a lawyer who has defended the rights of people who use drugs at the Supreme Court of Canada, as well as a frontline peer worker from a small BC community. But first, we'll be joined by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Internationally acclaimed Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer. She's called for a safe supply as a way to address the harms that come with criminalization of drugs and has written a white paper about it. Since recording our interview, the province of BC has announced new efforts to increase access to prescription pharmaceutical alternatives to the toxic street drug supply. And this includes updated clinical guidance. That expands eligibility criteria to prioritize reducing drug overdose events and death and new nursing education pathways and prescribing standards that will help expand access to addictions care. And a note to our listeners, given Dr. Henry's very busy schedule throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, she was not able to join us in studio to record her interview. So what you're about to hear might sound a little bit rough around the edges, but Dr. Henry's was a voice we absolutely wanted to hear from, and we think you will too. Dr. Henry, tell us a little bit about why drug policy is a public health issue. We started looking at, you know, what were the root causes, connections, the things that were leading to people using alone, people being afraid to to talk about their drug use, uh, people hiding it, people being stigmatized and shamed. And much of that had to do with criminalization. I mean, what is the stigmatizing things that we can do people is to call them a criminal and put them in jail, and they're afraid of losing their family, losing their children, losing jobs. Of course, the toxicity of the street drug supply has just dramatically changed, and that's where um, the importance of things like a pharmaceutical alternative, that at least we know the strength of the drug, um, can make a big difference. What are some of the health concerns that are associated with drugs being illegal rather than the drug itself? 
illegal drugs that are on the street. They're made under conditions that are not um, regulated. They're not clean necessarily. And so it leads to things like uh, infections, um, uh, contamination with other chemicals that can cause uh, severe reactions to people and the whole um, having to connect with people who are in that illegal drug trade is very dangerous as well. You mentioned a lot of the different sort of direct health effects of criminalization. For some of the clinicians and frontline workers who are listening to this, is there any specific things that would impact on their practice if they're considering getting into treating this field or are treating it and want to expand their practice? What particular things do would help and what particular things would people need to know about those harmful effects? I think that the important thing we clinicians need to think about is, um, you know, that, that harm reduction thinking. So it's not that we're providing um, medications to somebody inappropriately. It's, it's, we're actually protecting them from using of uh, a drug that we know is toxic giving them what they need because we know that people have problematic substance use or addiction, that it is a medical condition. It's a, you know, with opioids in particular, it's a chronic relapsing brain disorder that happens when you become addicted to opioids. Then we know that even when we're prescribing um, uh, pharmaceutical alternatives, so uh, regulated drugs, um, that some people will still continue to use street drugs, but their use tends to go down. And, that, and the other thing that I think is incredibly important about um, a supply and things that we as clinicians need to think of is the very act of connecting with somebody and meeting them where they are, bringing them along and making those connections. And we know that they, as we've heard people say, the opposite of the data is connection. And it is that opportunity for us to treat people with respect, to recognize that they have a condition, This, that what they're taking is not, um, it's at that point where they need um, connection, they need to have a safe reply to be able to, to reduce some of the chaos in their life. And if we can make those connections, that increases the probability that people are going to get into that place in their life where, where recovery is an option. And that's, you know, that is a, a a positive thing that we need to focus on. These sound actually like pretty basic principles of physicians and nursing practice, which is, you know, be, even before we had terms like harm reduction or four pillars, you've practiced for, for many years in the Navy. And I'm sure this is, this is basically just listening to people and meeting them where they're at to get better health outcomes. Well, absolutely. And, and that's where, um, you know, addictions medicine, if we think about medicine, um, you know, the hierarchy and in our medical world and mental health is, is sort of like the, the poor sister and, and addictions medicine is like the, 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 uh, the poor cousin twice removed. <laughs> so we, we have not spent enough time learning about addictions, learning about how to talk to people with addictions. But no, it is so prevalent in our society. And we've been seeing that, of course, in the last few years. What would you see as like an ideal future state for how drugs are regulated in Canada? There's short term and long term. <laughs> I think we, we've had our grand experiment with uh, with cannabis. That is something that you know government made a commitment to. It happened. The sky didn't fall. We're still working it out. 
And I think that is a good way to, to, to think about moving forward. Ideally, in the future, I would like to see all illegal drugs being regulated in the same way that we do with cannabis. So I, I think where we need to move is really focusing on what we can do to protect people during this crisis. And decriminalization is a, an incredibly important one for the reasons that we just talked about. And we know that it differentially affects women, particularly Indigenous women. If we look at correctional facilities here in British Columbia and in the province, 80% of, of um, women in our provincial correctional facilities are in there for level drug use. And, and over 50% of the population in the, the female um, prison are Indigenous women. We put Indigenous women in jail for, for drug use, whether it's um, sex for drugs or, or whether it's low-level crime like that. We disrupt communities, we disrupt families, their children are more likely to end up in care. We need change that. And to me, it's a reconciliation issue. It's a race issue. These are things that are important for us to address. Hmm. There's, um, you mentioned prisons, and that's really interesting. We've, we've talked about that a bit on the show. And people talk about it as like a magnifying glass on the social determinants of health, which I think we've very clearly seen COVID has been as well. Um, looking back on this time, you know, in a few years, in the long term, is there anything that you'd like you'd apply after learning about from COVID about the overdose crisis? Like what would you, what would you say is the biggest learning that we want to keep or the biggest thing that we want to have change coming out of this? This pandemic highlighted um, inequities that have existed for a long time. We were able to work with our provincial correctional facilities to change some of the ways they were thinking about people who were putting in, in you know, our provincial system where it turned around so quickly. Um, recognizing that uh, many of uh, the people that were being put at risk for COVID with their underlying illnesses in the provincial system related to, to drug offenses and that there were alternatives that could work. We need to continue to use that. And, and I, uh, you know, in public health, I think we've um, developed a bit of profile and influence that we also need to use. To, to build back better, to make sure that we can, um, these, uh, these inequities that have been um, exposed because of the impact of pandemic across society, you know, we have an opportunity now to address those. And I'm hearing receptive ears in a way that I have not in, a, in the last few years. How would decriminalization affect clinicians in their everyday practice? People who use drugs need to be treat it like other people with medical conditions. It's, it's not something different. It's not something that is illegal, so I just need to ignore it. It's something that it recognizes that this is something we can do something about and that we as clinicians can care for people who have these uh, issues and we can help them through these issues and we can support them in, in you know, making sure that they have what they need, stay safe and stay healthy. Well, Dr. Henry, it's really great to have you on here. And thank you, I think, for also the reminder that physicians, nurses, and other frontline uh, workers can have a major role to play, getting better health outcomes, uh, even when it's controversial. We can, and we, we, we do. And there are some people like Christy and, and, and others who have been um, shining lights in this way. And so what we need to do and what I need to do is, is um, do it, use my influence to try and support that for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Bonnie Henry is BC's public health officer. We've included a link to her white paper, Stopping the Harm, Decriminalizing People Who Use Drugs, in our show notes.
it was really incredible just talking to Dr. Bonnie Henry and hearing about how the what needs to be done is actually pretty core and basic to health practice. Yeah, I love it when solutions are pragmatic. When And I think that that's really the public health lens to say what is causing this harm and how do we address the root cause. And she seems really attuned to listening to the people she works with, whether it's dealing with uh, overdoses or uh, harm reduction or COVID. Yeah, you can really hear her compassion comes through. I spoke with Amber Strukens, who lives in Nelson, BC, and she's many years into her own recovery and has two small children. She's still working with and for people who use drugs and is a frontline peer worker with several groups led by people using drugs in the Kootenays, including Anchors and the Rural Empowered Drug User Network. I see this voice, the voice of people who use drugs, as not only absolutely essential in all of these conversations around substance use, service, navigation, harm reduction, treatment, decriminalization, it's, this is the central voice. We need to, I think, collectively move away from a point where, you know, we're still excluding this voice or undermining or patronizing or tokenizing because people who use drugs are, you know, highly intelligent, highly capable, and highly aware of the ways that criminalization impact their daily lives. So when folks have need to access the healthcare system, you know, they do so entering many layers of stigma, um, you know, both individual practitioners, you know, whether in emergency or in walk-in clinics or anywhere you go, really, there's individual level stigma that I do see in many of my interactions supporting people. But then there's also, you know, structural barriers that people face, things that are built into the way that we offer healthcare. You know, one of the big things that I see a lot of is the way that people experience the emergency room, which is oftentimes people's kind of only or last open door into the healthcare system. Um, and part of what that looks like, in my opinion, is, you know, there's a foundational lack of trust, safety, honesty, transparency um, that people who use drugs have with medical practitioners, which I think is legitimately based on previous experiences that people have had in these systems. I have worked with countless folks who are unwilling to disclose their substance use, despite that it is an important part of why they're seeking treatment or service for fear of things like child apprehension or incarceration. And those very real concerns about safety, liberty are definitely impacting people's ability to, you know, access any sort of care, including substance use treatment or, you know, response to overdose. Hmm. We've heard from, you know, advocates in the major cities that, you know, have often been at the forefront publicly of, of um, fighting for decriminalization, for safe supply. You've experienced not only in Nelson and across the Kootenays, but previously in, uh, in the Sunshine Coast. Could you tell me about any similarities you noticed between communities outside the major cities and any differences? We don't maybe have the same diversity of service. We don't maybe have the same volume of access. And yet we're dealing with the same issues. When you present at a hospital in Nelson, I sometimes feel like 
we're not quite prepared. You know, we're not, we're not as, as used to dealing with these issues. We maybe don't have the same options in our medical system to offer people. We don't necessarily have the same access to detox and treatment pathways. Um, if that's what a person wants, we have this, you know, sort of small town belief that I hear, you know, not just in my own community, but across other rural communities that we're connected with that we're just not getting the same level of service. My last question for you, Amber, is just about how healthcare providers might be better allies in using their voice to advocate for deeper long-term change. Yeah, I think healthcare providers um, who are committed to harm reduction um, have a responsibility to ally quite directly and quite supportively with people who use drugs to hear our voices, to hear what is needed, and to utilize their positions of privilege, their power, their voice, their resources to back and support our initiatives. Um, people with power need to be speaking to power alongside people who use drugs. I think on the individual level, some of the most fantastic care I've seen has been from really committed individual practitioners in the system who are willing to push against the grain, to challenge policy, to advocate. Um, oftentimes it's these individuals that are able to make the most impact on that one person in that one moment. You know, it seems sometimes to me like these should be very straightforward things, but um, oftentimes it does take somebody who's really willing to go the extra mile to challenge what would normally be the way that they practice. We reached Amber Strukins in Nelson. She's a frontline peer worker with Anchors and the Rural Empowered Drug Use Network. I really love this common thread that making people feel safe is a core part of providing care. And one thing that really struck me from what Amber said is that, um, you know, we've come a certain distance of consulting with drug users as an essential voice. But she said there's still a risk of tokenizing and patronizing people and that, in fact, they're the central voice to the conversation if we want better health outcomes. And she demonstrates that so well. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that fits into viewing this as a systems issue, not as an individual issue. So I think about the wonderful clinicians in ERs across BC who are hampered by the context of the systems within which we work and that the system itself isn't what needs to change. Yeah, and I think health providers, doctors and nurses are, you know, so swamped with dealing with individuals and communities that those bigger picture systems seem out of the grasp. But in fact, there's a fair, fairly big voice and power that can carry a responsibility that Amber talked about, you know, to speak up and to actually speak out. Yeah, especially in that rural context that she spoke to where um, access to service is one of the most fundamental parts. We also wanted to hear a legal case for addressing the negative health effects of criminalization. Our next guest is Scott Bernstein. He's advocated for people who use drugs, including for prescription heroin treatment, and defended Insight, the safe injection facility in Vancouver, at the Supreme Court of Canada. He's also Director of Policy with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Scott, I'm so looking forward to talking with you about these issues. And I'm a family doctor and working in the Downtown East Side. And so why should this issue matter to family doctors? 
we know working in areas of policy, how policies affect how doctors can um, provide care to their patients, what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do, some of the different tools they have at hand to address this. And we're seeing with the overdose crisis a uh, largely a policy crisis. And so I think it's... Um, uh, you know, it's it's an issue affecting the systems we've put in place that are limiting access to drugs, um, it, together with the fact that people are continuing to access illegal uh, drugs that are unregulated and they're of unknown potency and quantity and so or quality. So we we know uh, largely the overdose crisis in Canada. Uh, it isn't even an overdose crisis; it's an opioid poisoning crisis. How do you see decriminalization affecting the listeners of this show, family, physicians, frontline workers on a practical level? I think ultimately it's it's about, um, you know, the shame that your patients may feel talking to you about their situation. And, and if you're, you know, if you're somebody who's a drug consumer, uh, there's a lot of uh, shame and stigma um, uh, approach to that because by definition, the thing you're doing is a criminal activity. So you're, you're basically talking to your doctor about your, your criminal activity and, and uh, for, you know, understandably, that's very uncomfortable. And so I think once we, uh, as a society, take away that stigmatizing uh, criminal justice approach to drug use, uh, we start saying like, yeah, this actually is a health concern. We understand that a lot of people who have problematic substance use, uh, there may be root causes of uh, trauma or poverty or uh, housing insecurity or all kinds of things that led you here, but it's not something to feel shameful about. And so you can talk to your doctor uh, about your actual situation. And uh, for me, the idea is that would open up a lot of doors to really have the kind of relationship that I think doctors want with their patients, where their patients are are honest and the doctor in turn is honest to the patient about how, how they can help them. In BC and uh, other provinces and also federally, we have these anti-stigma campaigns, but we, we have to recognize that the most stigmatizing thing we can do to somebody is call them a criminal and uh, have them go through the criminal justice system. That's so interesting to think about a criminal justice policy and how it impacts a relationship of trust between a physician and a patient. I really like that framing of to think about that we want our patients to tell us about their lives and the risks that they're partaking in each day and that why is it risky? A lot of times drug use is risky because it's illegal. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's a... Um, an issue of perspective, a lot of doctors may not understand the stigma that their patients are feeling, um, particularly, you know, people who come from sort of backgrounds that were a bit challenging and, and now, you know, they're not necessarily proud of what they're doing or who they are or where they're at. And I think those really do create barriers through the system, any kind of social service or help or interactions with other people. So I think I think as a society, it really promotes individual and public health to reduce that stigma. And, and again, like, you know, let's, let's take away the criminal justice stick approach and try to think of, of better ways to treat people. For a physician that's saying, I, you know, maybe not in the urban center where we have a lot of these programs, they feel uncomfortable with the idea that they might be prescribing heroin or hard drugs like that. What, what's the kind of, what do you say to that? The real risk is, uh, in my in my view, is sort of doing nothing. Mm. Like the, the real risk is like t finding a patient who is dependent on the substance, and if you say I'm not I'm not able to help you in the way you need, 
then then what are they going to do? And so it's sort of, you know, in a way it like cleans your hands, but not really. Well, I definitely found that it was my patients that changed my mind. Like I never thought 10 years ago that I would be prescribing hydromorphone for people to inject. Um, and now I love doing it because people get better so quickly. It's such a joyful intervention to provide. Uh, I saw a documentary that helped me change my mind as well. And then I had a patient who really needed it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, OK, uh, I've got to do this for this person. And I think that's often how doctors work through providing a new intervention. Ultimately, what happens is like, like you know, it's not that hydromorphone itself doesn't have risks. It does. But th those risks are largely uh, known because when we, when we give somebody hydromorphone, it's of a known uh, potency and quality. And so we've removed a whole set of risks and harms that just come from the policy. Or you're having to put your you know, housing and food money towards this, or you have to engage in sex work. Like Those are all externalities to the risk of the drug. But what they do is ultimately those are the those are the biggest harms for people. And once once you have uh, distilled the situation down to just all I'm doing is I'm in injecting some pharmaceutical grade opioid, then it's like okay, that's that's actually a problem that's a bit more manageable. That we we have tools to help you with that and help you you know if you're if you're going to go into treatment, okay, we can help you with that. Uh, if you're just sort of maintaining where you're at, um, you're going to be healthier because you're you're eating better and you're taking care of yourself and you're under medical care. How do you um, address people's worries about public disorder when thinking about this future state that of a legal regulated market? Well, I think you know, like like realistically speaking, like y y there there is public disorder, but you know, like if you go outside of a bar on a Saturday night uh, at you know at midnight, there's public a bit of public disorder there too, and we somehow manage it or or deal with it. And so I think the idea is to sort of minimize that type of behavior. And so the majority, vast majority of people consume alcohol, to use an example, do it responsibly and in an appropriate way, and it's only certain outliers. And so I think it, it has to do around developing a, a culture of safety. And the evidence shows that, you know, when you put in things like a, a supervised consumption site, public disorder improves, not not down. It, it actually, people are injecting inside the facility. Uh, people are discarding needles inside the facility. They, you know, with legal regulation, one of the big benefits is you don't have to engage in crime uh, to get your, your substances. Thank you so much for your work and for coming here today. Scott Bernstein is Director of Policy at the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. It's interesting to hear from a lawyer and from legal context. Uh, I think a lot of physicians and nurses wouldn't necessarily consider that. But how do you see the role of advocacy actually fitting into a medical or health practice? Well, being an advocate is part of the job description of being a family doctor. It's one of our core competencies as a clinician that serves a community is to advocate for that community. I was reflecting on what we learned today, and I thought I would put together a few clinical pearls for us to think about as clinicians. Family medicine is a community-based discipline. That means advocating for addressing the larger issues affecting your patient's health, including changing the toxic illicit drug supply and changing social isolation of people who use illicit drugs, which can put our patients at risk of death. By treating drug use as a criminal justice issue instead of a public health issue, people are less likely to access life-saving medical care. They may avoid calling 911 or avoid telling their family doctor about their drug use. 
When people who use drugs are incarcerated, the risk of drug-related death surges eightfold in the weeks following release. The risk of HIV and Hep C also increase. Only 39% of the overdose deaths in the Vancouver Coastal Health Region were daily opiate users. The rest of the overdose deaths were in people who use alcohol or crystal meth. There is no pharmacologic intervention to protect this population from death. We wouldn't start a non-daily user on oat. For example, if someone's smoking fentanyl once per month, it wouldn't be appropriate to start them on methadone. So really, it's hard to find a medical solution to prevent these deaths caused by criminal justice policy. As Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer, wrote in her white paper recommending decriminalization, prohibition and punitive-based drug policy magnify harms associated with substance possession, such as communicable disease transmission, increased stigmatization of people who use drugs, and increased drug-related mortality, while having little to no impact on reducing drug use rates. As clinicians, we follow people over time, sometimes also taking care of their families and their loved ones as well. When we see a harm caused by a system, we have a powerful voice to ask for change to address the root cause, to improve our patients' lives and reduce the risk of mortality. Thank you to our guests today, Scott Bernstein, Amber Strickens, and Dr. Bonnie Henry. This has been Addiction Practice Pod, the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use. To learn more, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. You can find links to all the studies and papers we've mentioned during the show in our show notes, including Dr. Henry's white paper. And of course, we'd always love you to fill out the short survey, which is linked in our show notes, that will help us create the best possible podcast. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. It was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. I'm David Ball. It was great to chat, David, as usual. I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.